This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Trinity, I cannot tell you how excited I am to preach to people instead of an empty room, which I've been doing. And could this be any more awkward? No, it couldn't. This is awful, but we're going to get through this together. Um, If uh, if you are new online, my name is Ronnie Garcia, senior pastor here at Trinity. And uh, this summer we have been going through uh, the Psalms. And the Psalms are like these songs in ancient Israel that are meant to shape us and form us and shape our spirituality. And uh, today we are going to get to Psalm 82. And let me just warn you, Psalm 82 is a doozy, you guys. It is incredibly difficult. Uh, It is not intuitive to modern readers at all. So it needs a little bit of explaining. And, And let me just set it up. To understand Psalm 82, we have to know a little bit about kingdoms and God's kingdom. And so in the ancient world, there were no borders, right? You didn't know where one country ended and where another started, except that the leader... The king would make statues of himself, a likeness of himself, and he put it all over his kingdom. So if you're walking around and you see a statue of the king, you know that you're in his territory. So his likeness is how they did this. Now, in Genesis, it kind of picks up that motif of how that was operative in the ancient world. And in Genesis, you, you have God depicted as the creator and king of the whole universe, and he shows you what belongs to him by putting statues of himself all over the place. Well, not statues, really, but image bears, you and me. And the idea is, is wherever there are people made in the image of God, that belongs to the Lord God himself. And so God, as the king, uses people, his, his image bears, to then govern for him. They're like vice regents. So you have God as the king, and you have people who are like his vice regents and his, and his governors. And the idea is that these local leaders, you and I, would civilize all of creation through social and cultural development. And this is what um, theologians call the cultural mandate. We're, we're, make, we're developing things. Maybe I would illustrate it like this. Uh, imagine that the United States had a king, and that king was the king of all, but then day-to-day operations are, are developed through local leaders, through local governors, right? So they're still the king, but day to day, the development of the country is happening by local leaders. It would be something like this. That's actually how Israel, ancient Israel, saw the whole world, right? God is the king, and every leader is an appointed governor by God to work for God. And so rulers, authorities, are God's representatives to behave as God would behave, That's the idea. That's how it's supposed to work. But that's not what actually happens, is it? Instead of behaving as God would behave and loving what God would love, they began thinking that they were gods themselves. That's what they began to think. Leaders saw themselves as gods. I mean, two quick examples. Pharaoh, leader? Yeah, he thought he was God. Caesar, leader? Yep, he thought he was God too. And so in ancient in ancient cultures, the powers of the gods 
were, were identified with the elites of society, the rulers, the military leaders, the priests, the kings, and so forth. And so what is Psalm 82? What is Psalm 82? Psalm 82 is this song of God confronting local leaders and local governors. And so what we're going to see when we study it here in just a second is this language of gods, plural, little g gods, describing rulers. It's not that these gods have divine characteristics in themselves. They're local leaders. And so Psalm 82 is this court scene where malicious gods or rulers are being condemned. That's what Psalm 82 is. Now, we're going to jump right into this text. But before we do, let me just say, who cares, right? Why do modern people need, why do we need to sing this ancient song about ancient rulers gone bad, gone rogue? I'll tell you why. This is why we need to listen closely. If you get a pastor alone, buy him a drink, and have him get real with you, he will tell you that every four years, it is incredibly hard to be a pastor. And you know why? Because it is election season. And everyone thinks that they know what the pastor is really saying. Every time we speak and say something, there is this tendency to project on what he's saying some sort of political subtext. Like everything we're saying is just the dude, is the pastor's guy just trying to talk, just advancing his political platform, right? We're always projecting. It's almost like a proxy war. And so everyone puts up their fist and they're just either looking for the guy to agree with him or they're looking just to absolutely be suspicious of the preacher, right? And, and it, it's a really uncomfortable situation. Let me just tell you right now, if you have a tendency to hear me through that lens, you would be wrong. I have no agenda except to bring you God's word. And God's word's messy. And it messes with everyone's politics. We work, pastors work incredibly hard, listen to me very carefully, to maintain our prophetic independence. What is that? In the Old Testament, there were these prophets. And the prophets didn't work for the kings. They were outside of the system to bring God's word and speak against the kings, to, against the rulers, right? They were always on God's team. So we work really hard not to, to align ourselves publicly with any of these political subtexts. We are on God's team. We are an equal opportunity offender. Let's just put it that way, all right? And we really want to maintain that. I want you to listen chari- charitably and give yourself and let God's word, you know, mess with you, meddle a little bit, all right? Now, listen, the question we have, though, is why is it, though, we're so touchy about our politics? Why am I even having to say this in the first place? And here's why. While we worship God, we functionally trust in our government and our political allegiances. We worship God, but we trust in our political allegiances. Our politics give us more joy or more anxiety, as it were, than God's word gives us comfort and joy. And that is a problem for the people of God. It shouldn't be the case. And since our politics are so elevated in our emotional and spiritual lives and our hearts, we sometimes feel like we're suffering under just rule and we're without hope, like the gods are winning, or we feel like we're seduced into cooperating with unjust rulers. But we're always anxious. We're always anxious. Psalm 82 is meant to be sung. And it, what it's going to do is it's going to bring us back to reality. 
The gods are not in charge. Man, it's going to help us see truth. It's going to help us see straight. See, we're living our daily lives fragmented and detached from reality. And this song is going to bring us back. It's going to focus our eyes. It's going to put us back together again, help us to see straight. And how does Psalm 82 do this? Well, it's going to take us to a court scene, all right? And it's going to walk us through three things. First, we're going to see a critique, verses 1 through 4. And then we're going to see a diagnosis of the problem, verse 5, and then we're going to see a warning, verses 6 through 8. And that is the whole thing, the whole psalm. So we're going to walk through Psalm 82. All right, without further ado, let's give ourselves to these ancient, beautiful, and true words. Would you, if you are willing and able, stand with me, and let's give ourselves carefully, diligently to Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you just unjust, judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. Would you allow me just to pray at this moment before we get into it? Let's pray. Father, I pray you do add blessing Uh, to the reading of your word through the preaching of your word. And Lord, if there is something true that I say, soften our hearts and allow us to give ourselves to it. And where I am in error, make it disappear from our hearts. Because Lord, our allegiance is with you. We want you no matter where you would take us. And so we submit ourselves as we listen to the preaching of your word even now. Amen. You may be seated. So, as I mentioned, uh, the lyrics or the words of Psalm 82 transport us to this court scene where these gods, these rulers, remember, have a court case against them. That's what starts in verse 1. Look there in your text. God has taken his place in the, what? The divine council. You see that verse 1? In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then the prosecution begins his, his case in verse 2. Look there. He says, how long? Will you judge unjustly? And what follows is a series of of critiques. Now, the word judge, just real quick, the word judge means to make something right. So if a ruler judges wickedly, it means that he is not using his politics, he is not using his authority, his government, according to what God has for him to do. In this case, verse 2b It's used to benefit one particular interest group. Who is it? The wicked, right? You see that in verse 2? The wicked. Those are the people who have power and wealth, and they use it in such a way to make God unnecessary. They don't need God. They got what God has. They have money and power, and they see themselves as independent from him, you see. So in this case, 
It's benefiting this one interest group. And the question we then are are presented with is what is their authority for? What is the government for? Well, verse 3, look there, tells us. Well, it's to give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. All right, the, the fatherless is all over the Old Testament. What are the fatherless? Those are orphans with no inheritance. You guys, the only social safety net in the Old Testament is your dad's inheritance. And if you're an orphan, you don't have that. You are vulnerable, and you need authority to protect you. That's what these rulers should be doing. Verse 3b, what else is it for? To protect the right of the afflicted and the destitute. So this would be, uh, let's say, like a farmer, right? For no reason of his own, a plague came through or a drought came through, and he's in a tight spot. He can't do what he's supposed to do, and so he is vulnerable, and he needs protection from sharks, right? He needs protection from them. And so the prosecution then continues with the responsibilities or the job description of these gods, of these rulers. Verse 4, read with me. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The idea is that these rulers would protect the vulnerable orphans and the defenseless, right, from predators, not facilitate them getting taken advantage of, right? You you protect, you don't facilitate. Now, some of you hear that and you say, all right, all right, nothing's changed, it's still happening in our world. Our laws have indeed taken advantage of certain people in our culture, right? We see this all over the place. Uh, you, you only have to like turn on and read the Supreme Court ruling. They've lost their minds, right? They're not protecting. They're facilitating. It's a problem. But you don't even have to do modern history to believe what I'm saying. Just read your history books. History is being unfolded, right, by evil rulers, Right? And evil governments. That's how we tell history anyway. And it's so bad that most of us are just outright cynical about politics. Right? Politi- politics is almost like a, like a cuss word, like a bad word. Don't take that word off your mouth, that kind of thing. It's a weird thing, though. While we hate politics, listen, while we hate politics, many still secretly look to politics to be the savior. And so every four years, there is this uptick in vitriol in the news, in the media, on our Facebook pages, right? There's vitriol. Why? Why is this? Why are we so touchy? What's going on? It's because even we, Christians too, who worship the one true God, demand that our little gods fix our problems. The gods. Not God. The gods. And our emotions and our hopes and our sense of security is inseparably tied to the performance of our gods, of our gods. Now listen, you guys, because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Listen carefully. It is perfectly appropriate and good for you to get involved in the democratic processes of our country. I served in our military. I died for the right for you to participate well. Even if the system is imperfect, it is good for you to participate. But what you cannot do, and please hear me on this, is you can't use your party as a synonym for the kingdom of God. Because it's not. 
It's not a synonym. There is no kingdom of God party. And in fact, it is incredibly important for Christians to maintain their prophetic freedom. No single party is innocent. It's not made by Christians, right? It's not made by pastors and theologians who just care about people. That's not how our system works. No single party is suited to care about all of the things that Jesus cares about, to care about all the things that are so dear and near to God's heart. They're not. Therefore, if you have left-leaning intuitions, you better have the courage to critique your side hard, right? And if, and if you have right-leaning intuitions, you better not conflate biblical ethics with your platform. Don't do that. Don't be a pawn of the gods. Christians should always, although they meaningfully participate in politics, they should, but even still they should always feel a little out of place in their own party. If it fits like a glove, you've done something wrong. Should always feel out of place a little bit. There's more to say. And I'm going to unfold more of this as we get through this next section of the psalm. So, so far what we've seen in verses 1 through 4 is the prosecution is making its critique against the gods, against these rulers. Now what we're going to go see is why these gods are incompetent, why they're unfit to play the role of God. All right? Look there at verse 5. Speaking of the gods, he says, the psalmist says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So what's the problem with the gods? They have no knowledge. The gods play the role of God, but they don't have what God has. They don't have his holiness of character. They don't have his perfect wisdom. And so what the rulers are doing, man, they're just, they're just acquiring power. They're just doing whatever it takes to be popular. They're just a pawn of their own time, right? They're just living in their moment, their own persuasion, their own deepest thoughts. They are walking about in darkness. That's what that word's. It'd be like, you know, my, my, one of my daughters is making cookies, she pauses and she says, Dad, is it baking powder or is it baking soda? And I just bark off some answer like I know something, right? Now ruin the cookies. Now the stakes are real low, it's just bad cookies. But see, with rulers and authorities, what's at stake? What's at stake? Human flourishing is at stake. We are designed by God and therefore we must always look to him to see what, how we are to flourish, what, what it means, how, what we're working towards. Now, presently, we have a strong movement in our political systems and our authorities to remove them of their foundations. When our political systems remove God's vision of justice, right? We, we, we just hijack justice for whatever we think it is, but we don't think about what God's vision of justice is. When we remove God's vision of truth from the equation, there is no moral compass. I mean, what's north? Who gets to decide what south is? Do we just vote on it? 
We, we don't actually know where we're going. We don't know what we're working to. We know how to critique. We know how to deconstruct. But we don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're working for. And it's killing us. We're all walking about in darkness. All rule must be derived from God's holy law, which corrects both the left and the right, by the way. It is God's law is the only moral preservative of our society. It's the only one. Now listen, some of you, even as I say this, you'll notice that it's, it's not that easy, right? We, we live in a pluralistic society, of course, and even still, the so-called Christian banner isn't a perfect solution. Tons of awful stuff in history have been perpetrated by people who are doing things in the name of God, haven't they, right? The Christian Crusades, hello? Spanish Inquisition? The transatlantic slave trade advanced by preachers? These terrible things have provoked many humanists and atheists to write scathing critiques about Christianity. I think of one Christopher Hitchens. He writes a book called God is Not Great. How, subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. He sets out to prove in this book that religion is violent, irrational, uh, oppressive. He asserts that atheism could save the day, right? That's, that's, his, that's his what he's writing for. Now, listen, of course, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the transatlantic slave trade, they're awful. There's, there is no one here, no one in this room, no, one, no preacher who's going to defend even an ounce of any of that. But it is important that we understand that there's a whole lot of history to be told. And so what are the virtues of humanism? What did it produce? What are the virtues of atheism? I'm not going to take you through history. I'm just going to take you to the 20th century. Stalin. 42 million people dead. Mao Zedong, 37 million people dead. Hitler, 20 million. Kai, uh, Kai-shek, 10 million. Lenin, 4 million. Tojo, 4 million. Pol Pot, 2.3 million people dead. That's just the 20th century. And that's really just a fraction of the 20th century. The Spanish Inquisition, you guys, lasted four centuries in the Archivo Nacional de España, the Spanish Archives of Spain says that 50,000 people were dead or killed because of it. 50,000. You study historians for the Christian Crusades, awful. Lasted half a millennia. That's how long the, the Crusades lasted, half a millennia. Highest, estimate, highest estimates, 3 million people dead. Now listen, those deaths are to be lamented. Those, de- those deaths are awful. And, and we grieve them. Right? We grieve them, and we work hard to make sure something like that would never happen again. But that is just a drop in the hat at what the, the, the fruit of humanism has produced. It is a drop in the hat. The idea that a system that does not have a really serious referent to God can produce a peaceful, tolerant society, one that's all about reconciliation, is absurd. Like, it's really important that you understand that it's absurd. It is a lie. Just open up the books, man. You see, it's an absurdity. Now, the quick response to me would be, well, Ronnie, we, we don't live in a Christian country 
And you can't legislate morality, right? Don't you know what separation of church and state are, Ronnie? And the answer is, of course I do. And I, and I even appreciate that it protects guys like me. I appreciate this. But that doesn't mean, I don't think that that means what you think that means. When people say you can't legislate morality, you know what they're saying? They're saying you can't legislate Christian morality because morality most certainly is being legislated. Someone's morality is getting a privilege, right? All laws are based on somebody's notion of what right and wrong is. And maybe they have foundations or maybe they don't, you see. And that's why they become laws. Please understand that every law that is affirmed is based on some particular view of right and wrong. It is a religion of sorts, a belief system that you cannot prove in a science lab that is getting privilege in our laws. Y'all see how that works? I just don't want us to be naive to how this works. A Christian morality in God's law though absolutely can be and has been abused by Christians, all right? I'm not, I'm not naive to these things, right? I'm an equal opportunity offender. I critique Christians all the time. I critique myself. But God's law does have this distinct character of grace and protection and non-vengeance in a way that we've never seen, that other systems don't have. And it protects people not because they're part of its tribe, but because they're made in the image of God. It has a distinct reconciliation flavor. It protects the born and the unborn. It protects black and white. It protects the rich and the poor. It protects male and female. It even protects people who don't have a a political voice, whether it's immigrants or people uh, of special needs who cannot be advocate, who can't advocate for themselves. It even restrains people from themselves, from harming themselves, right? It restrains people from suicide, eugenics, the predatorial nature of gender theory and gender ideology. It protects them from that, you see. Did you know that the concept of equal justice under the law, the 14th Amendment, comes and is derived very specifically from Judeo-Christian morality? That's why we got it. Now, some people say, no, 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 that's just common sense, Ronnie. No, it's not. That's why we had to codify it as the 14th Amendment, because it's not. There isn't normally naturally equal justice under the law. Christians say that there are. God says that there are. Just ask a Hindu, right? In the caste system, you come from a higher caste or you come from a lower caste, you tell them about equal justice. No, 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 no. The justice privileges a certain caste, not all of them. We don't believe that. Why? Because of what we learn here in Psalm 82. And so Psalm 82 critiques rulers, all of them, wherever they would be, any party that they're in, those that are walking in darkness, and we must too. And how do we do this? Well, let me tell you that we don't do this by churches get involved in politics. Churches have tried to get involved in politics, and they do it awfully. They're terrible. And in fact, it reduces our witness Right? It reduces our witness. Our witness isn't big enough. We're not, we're not big enough to reach everyone when we are synonymous with a party. We don't get involved in politics. But what we do do 
is we produce disciples of Christ who are such fantastic citizens, who are swimming in God's word, who adore to follow Jesus wherever Jesus would take them. And those individuals go into every sector of society, whether it be education, whether it be banking, whether it be music and the arts, whether, whether it be construction, right? Whatever sector you're in, law enforcement, you, they go into those sectors with their prophetic independence, right? And they seek the welfare of the people in their communities. And they are that extension of the kingdom of God. So instead of walking in darkness, and we're swimming in God's word so intently that we begin to walk in the light, in knowledge. And you know what this means, you guys? Listen, the walls are closing in. It's getting harder and harder to be a Christian. That's, that's, that's how it's going to go. Heads up. And so we have to equip our children powerfully. They have to be so skilled in knowing what they believe, why they believe. Daddies, do not outsource the spiritual formation of your children to someone else. That's your job, right? And, and, and if you don't, if there's not a daddy in the house, especially now the church needs to come. That's why we, we need one another. So I mean, can, we could think these things through and so that individuals can go into their sectors and be the light. And that's how this thing wa- works. All right, I'm talking a lot. All right, sorry. Here's what we're going to do. Let me, uh, okay, so far I looked at the critique, verses 1 through 4. I looked at the problem, right, the, the diagnosis. This is verse 5. Last section, now we're going to look at this warning. This is verses 6 through 8. All right, is everyone okay? We're doing okay? All right. Verse 6 begins with a reminder, look there, to the rulers of their mortality. Now, how so? Well, first God says, you are gods. Okay, that's God saying you are gods. Translation, let me translate that for you. God's saying, you are a ruler because I put you there, right? That is, if you're a ruler, it's because God put you there. And this is uniform from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Our New Testament reading today, Romans 13 There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is Paul writing in the Roman Empire, right? He's looking at Roman Roman governors saying, yeah, yeah, you've been put there by God, right? All right, so then the psalmist continues, verse 7. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. Translation, hey, don't get caught up believing that you actually are a God. Don't Don't buy into that cute little title. You are not a God, you are a man, and you will die, and you will give an account. Strong language, isn't it? Those are strong words. Like, why, why do we got to sing that? It's a little, that's not exactly feel good. Here's why, you guys. It is a warning for people in authority to think about their choices, how they treat people, how they use their authority. Because what they do with their authority really, really, really has eternal implications. Do you guys remember um, that story, The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, this kind of really frugal businessman who just was awful to his employees and made a ton of money off the backs of other people. And then on Christmas Eve, three ghosts visit him, right? The ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Y'all remember this story? I think there's like a Disney version of it. I'm not sure. So 
basically, that when the ghost of Christmas present comes, he takes Ebenezer Scrooge to the home of one of his employees, this guy named Bob Cratchit. And he peeks in to see this family. And this family's struggling. I mean, they're cheerful. They're good along. But man, they are in a tight pickle. And, and Ebenezer's forced to see like what his frugality and what his sin has led to in this family. Right? He, he's responsible for some of that. And they have that son, remember Tiny Tim, who's on the verge of dying because he can't get good health care. Right? And so what, what's happening is when the ghost of Christmas present takes Scrooge to that, it confronts him and it, and it warns him. And it says, hey, your choices, Scrooge, matter. Just know that. Your choices matter. Well, by singing Psalm 82, the strong language, on one hand, it's, it's helping us to feel hope, right? Uh, that God is going to deal with the gods who are over us, the authorities. Like, so we don't have to get... We don't have to be so touchy because God's, God's, in, God's in control, right? So it gives us hope. But it's also, it's also a warning to us to rethink how we exercise our authority. Everyone, everyone has authority over something. And so the question we're posed with is, do you care about justice the same way that God cares about justice. Do you care about the people that are so near and dear to God's heart the way God does? Is that manifest? Does your heart beat for what God's heart beats for? Because our choices matter. And so this song is to shape us all. All right. Let me just quickly finish. Thank you guys for your attention. The psalm Remember I told you we sing it because it's trying to help us see straight, right? We've been defragmented. We started believing the wrong reality, and God's trying to bring us back in. It's putting us back together again. Helps us to see truth. And it does so by taking us to this court scene where God judges these rulers and makes known his critique, the problem, and then gives us a warning. And so Psalm 82 is kind of like this corporate lament for us because Right, you guys, when we look around, we just look at our world, it's so broken, and we see rulers, if you will, who are not living up to God's job description, what God has them to do. And we're the ones, though, who have to live in this world, and it's wearing us down, isn't it? And it's just wearing us down. And sometimes we're worn down just by this, the sheer brokenness of our society, and sometimes it even touches our family. And sometimes we're just worn out by the paralyzation because it seems so broken that we really want to do something, right? We really want to do something, but it is too big for you. You can't change it, can you? And you're just paralyzed. It makes you despair. Listen, don't grow weary. The Lord is not calling you to be Jesus. Jesus is the just ruler who will fix this. He's not calling you to be Jesus. Jesus is the world's only just ruler, and he was crucified by unjust rulers. Why? So that he could assure you and me that one day all of this is going to be dealt with. 
perfectly with a God who sees all the angles. And you and I will one day, and your children, will enjoy perfect harmony and justice with the just king in his arms. That's where this is going. So don't try to be Jesus. All I'm asking you to do is just do the next right thing. Don't try to do the whole thing. No one's calling you to that. Just do the next right thing in the small corner of the world in which God has placed you. Raise your family. Point them to Jesus. Swim in his word. Run your business. Be generous. Take care. May the people under you flourish. Serve the community. Love the people that God loves. Let, let, it, let it meddle with you a little bit. Do the next right thing, not the whole thing, just the next right thing, because Jesus is batting clean up, you guys. He's going to win. He's going to fix this. And so you, until that day, which Jesus returns, and he will, you fix your eyes on him until you are more like him. Don't build your house on anything except the ultimate victory of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Man, I, we are going to get to a place where we figure this out and we can enjoy and consummate God's word at a table together. And I long for that because I want you to hear the gospel in your ears and I want you to taste it on your lips. And I don't want this to be so awkward. I don't want you to feel hot breath on your own nose. I hate it for you. I hate it. It's also sterile. I just want to hug it out with all of you. And I'm sorry that we can't do that. And please don't project any political subtext by the fact that we're trying to follow government protocols, all right? There's nothing going on here, all right? About the, so that what's going on. Man, we don't know. We're, we're doing the best we can, humbly listening, all right? But man, God's going to fix this. God's going to fix this, all right? This won't last forever. Don't despair. Don't despair. Let's just take a moment and allow that our hearts not to move too fast past Psalm 82. We're going to sing together. We're going to worship because remember, singing words, psalms, helps shape us and form us spiritually. That's what's going on right now. Let me pray for us, and then the band's going to lead us. Father in heaven, let Psalm 82 change us, form us, teach us to love what you love. Help us to have our prophetic independence. Bring us to Jesus. We love you. And we get that we don't do it well. We get that we have not exercised authority well. But Lord, today is a new day. Do a new work in our souls. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.